Ezra chapter 6, uh, verses 13 through 22. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and their associates stood with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. The elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Idu. They finished their building by decree of, of God, of the God of Israel, and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of this of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the, the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. This is the very word of God. Mindy and I spent most of the past week with four other pastors and their wives on a pastor's retreat aimed at uh, rest and encouragement. We had a great time. We didn't know these pastors before we got there, but uh, interestingly, one of the pastors is a pastor at a church that I, in my past, worked at. Uh, we didn't know that each other were going to be there. We had never met each other. Uh, as we spent four days or so together, we had lots of conversations about shared experiences in ministry, and we were mutually encouraged by each by each other. It was one of those it was one of those circumstances of life that you can't help but notice as. Um, a stroke of chance that seemed planned, purposeful. There was only five couples meeting together, and what's the chances that two of us had worked together, or had worked at a, at a same church in our past? Now, as Christians, of course, we know there is no such thing as randomness, chance. Sometimes we call these experiences divine appointments. That's what my friend called it as we were leaving. This was quite a divine appointment. But the theological word for such things 
is providence. The sixth chapter of Ezra is a classic text on the subject of the providence of God. Now, we left our story last week awaiting the reply of the Persian king Darius, who was asked to verify whether or not the people of Israel, some 15 years after they had returned from exile, have the right to rebuild their temple. The governmental authorities wish to know if the king will indeed allow the rebuilding of the temple to go on. They ask Darius at the end of chapter 5 to send us your pleasure in this matter. The chapter before us this morning brings the story to conclusion. The temple does indeed get rebuilt. This is what's known as the second temple, the rebuilding of Solomon's temple. It was the temple that stood, of course, in the days of Jesus. But the question before us as we bring this particular plot in Ezra's story to a close is how? How did the temple Get built. Indeed, how is it that anything significant ever gets done in this world? When we look back on the past of our lives, what do we see? Do we see fortune, chance? Do we see providence? Do we see randomness or do we notice the royal decree? You see, the Bible tells us that the providence of God is the doing of the divine decree. God's providential power over the events of history is real. And it is purposeful. It is meant to bring God's people maximum joy. God's providential power over the events of history is real, and it is meant to bring God's people Maximum joy. Ezra helps us to see this as he brings the story of the rebuilding of the temple to a close and explains to us in the story the cause of providence, the response to providence, and the outcome. The cause of providence, the response to providence, and the outcome of providence. Let's look at it together this morning. First, the cause of of providence. The Bible would have us to understand that there is a providential cause for everything that happens. Everything. As we read through the first 12 verses of Ezra 6, or glance through them perhaps, we didn't read these out loud this morning you will see the answer to the question, how was the temple completed, is repeated over and over again. And it's simply this. The temple was rebuilt by decree, by decree of the king. The providential cause behind the temple being brought to completion is a king who decrees. So verse 1 tells us, then Darius the king made a decree. Now, again, we're picking up the story kind of at the end of chapter 5. But let's stop for a moment and think, what is a decree? In particular, what is the decree of a king? It is an official pronouncement of what the king desires. And since the king is, well, 
a king. What he desires is what he gets. It's what he gets done. The comment that is frequently said of a servant to his king is, your wish is my, your wish is my command. A king's decree is a king's command. So when Darius, what Darius commands here in verse 1 is that a search be made of the royal archives to find out what these people who have returned from exile in Babylon claim to be their authorization for rebuilding the temple. Is it factual? They have explained at the end of chapter 5 that uh, King Cyrus, the first great Persian king, had given them the authorization to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. So Darius, the king now on the scene, notice that even he has his limitations. Because, of course, we find out from the book of Daniel that the law of the Persian Empire was that a royal decree cannot be changed or revoked. So Darius's decree is find out if his predecessor, Cyrus the Great, has made the decree that the people of Israel claim to be their authorization for the rebuilding project. And verses 2 to 5 affirm that indeed the archive uh, turned out the document that says this is exactly what Cyrus had said. So Darius then, in verse 6, makes his own decree. And his decree is that the governors, their associates in the land of Israel, keep away from the work on the house of God. That is, don't hinder them, don't cause them any trouble. In fact, according to verse 8, Darius decrees that the entire weight of his kingdom, the Persian Empire, be used to fully support the financial needs. Even notice verse 9, supplying the animals for the burnt offerings day by day without fail. It's a stunning turn of events. The decree goes on in verse 11. Also, I make a decree, says Darius, that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. Now listen, church, when you read words like that, you are shocked back into the reality of life in the ancient world. This is a world. Don't, don't make Cyrus and Darius, these nice little kings. This is savage strategies that were used by all these kinds of pagan kings to maintain stability in their kingdom. What is happening here is not a diplomatic pronunciation of goodwill. What we have here is the brutal savagery of a royal leader, a king, who's making it plain, who's in charge. So he concludes his decree in verse 12 by saying his decree is to be done with all diligence. Nobody stops. Don't you dare try to stop the king's decree. And in spite of what sounds like the words of a God-fearing psalmist in verse 12, Darius is no believer in Yahweh. Verse 11 hints at the well-known policy of the Medo-Persian Empire to adopt the local deities of all nations solely for the aim of the prosperity and longevity of their own kingdoms. He decrees that the God of Israel, the God of heaven, as he calls him, will be petitioned for the life of the king and his sons. This is the decree of Darius. So verse 13 tells us that Tatanai, the local leader, did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered, and that's how the temple got built. That's how the work was finished. 
It was accomplished by the decree of the king. That was the ultimate cause. But in verse 14, as Ezra summarizes the story, he tells us something that you simply can't miss. He tells us that the work was completed through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Idu. But he also says this, look at it, verse 14. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now, did you catch that? Ezra 6.14 is not merely the decree of the Persian kings, but the decree of God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, that brought the work to completion. Now, this is, in the words of one commentator, a piece of pure Jewish theology. We understand that the temple was rebuilt by the decree of Cyrus. You can actually as we've said in the introduction to this whole sermon series, you can actually see the great Cyrus stone, the Cyrus cylinder, that is, um, in the British Museum. It is a real historical document that tells of the decree for the people of Israel to be sent back and rebuild their temple. This is the stuff of history. We we can understand the the decree of Darius, a, a known king in history, the successor to Cyrus the Great, making a decree that Cyrus's decree is to be fulfilled. We can get all that. But Ezra pauses here and says, in the midst of retelling the story, he teaches something theological, direct. He tells us explicitly the point that he wants us to see from the story of the rebuilding of the temple. The temple was certainly rebuilt by the decree of several Persian kings. Each of them issued separate decrees, but the somewhat surprising language of Ezra 6.14 is the singular use of decree, by decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Xerxes, not the decrees, which we'd expect. He views the commands of the Persian kings collectively. Why does he do it that way? It's because, again, of the theological point that Ezra has just said right before that. The point is made emphatically. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel. There's simply no way to miss it. According to Ezra's retelling of the story, it is God's decree, God's command that motivated the decrees of the Persian kings. What these kings did was simply an echo of the divine decree of the God of Israel himself. So on the surface of the story of Israel's rebuilding of the temple, we can see the role of the prophets who stirred up the people to get the work done. We talked about that last week. We can see how critical the decrees of the Persian kings was as well. But what we can't clearly see, unless you have eyes to see it, is that the ultimate cause for the building's completion is the divine decree. It's an example of the way the God of the Bible works. This is how he typically sees his work brought to completion. God makes a decree 
And then he uses means, ordinary means, things that you can see in history right before your face to bring it all about. It's an inescapable truth that if we're going to believe the God of the Bible and not the God of our imagination, we have to embrace. Our catechism says it this way. The decrees of God are his eternal plan based on the purpose of his will, by which, for his own glory, he has foreordained everything that happens. We see evidence of that teaching in here, right here in Ezra 6. And we hear it in the words of the psalmist who says in Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God's will, his decree, is the cause of providence. It's the cause of everything that happens. Now, how should you respond to that teaching of the Bible? How do you respond to it? Just take, take notice for a moment of what your affections, your heart, your mind is doing right now when you think of the providence of God. Again, the decrees of God are his eternal plan based on the purpose of his will by which for his own glory he has foreordained everything that happens. It's one of the most controversial teachings of the Bible. And it's challenging. If you embrace this view of providence that God decrees everything that happens, let me, let me guess. Some of you perhaps are wondering, well, then what of the goodness of God in the midst of this bad news that I'm enduring right now? You think in that way? Does that come into your mind? What effect will believing this doctrine, this teaching of the Bible, have on your daily life? If God indeed decrees everything that happens, does this mean then that your decisions day after day are meaningless? One thing's for certain, the providence of God, according to Ezra, who wrote this verse, is meant to produce a response. He doesn't want the doctrine of the providence of God to just be an interesting caveat that's found in the Bible. He wants it to affect you. How do I know this? Because he implies the same in the way he says verse 14 itself. There's one other aspect of verse 14 we can't miss. Notice there are three Persian kings mentioned in verse 14. Again, unless you are uh, kind of got your arms around the history of the Persian Empire, then maybe you won't notice it. But notice that there's three kings who are credited as instruments that God used to get the temple built again. Cyrus, Darius, we understand that. But he mentions Artaxerxes, and that's surprising. 
After all, verse 15, the next verse says that the temple was finished when? When? Look at it. The sixth year of the reign of who? You're looking at it, right? Darius. Okay, so let's get our history right. Artaxerxes comes way after Darius. He wasn't even born when Darius died. So how could he have anything to do with the rebuilding of the temple when the temple was finished before he was even born? (laughs) You see that? The Bible's strange like this sometimes. And when you come across a verse like this, you can either say, well, big mistake, error in writing, or you can say, maybe Ezra, verse 14 is already theologically loaded, right? So maybe Ezra is wanting us to see, feel something here. You see, by mentioning Artaxerxes, Ezra has momentarily jolted the reader forward into the contemporary time in which he was writing. We get to the next chapter that we'll look at next week, chapter 7. It starts during the reign of Artaxerxes. This is the king, the Persian king who's reigning when Ezra himself comes on the scene in the next chapter. So we will see in chapter 7 that indeed Artaxerxes makes a decree which suggests that he has something to do in supporting the temple himself. So Ezra 6.14 can hardly be said to be an error in light of Ezra 7, 15 to 24. But it's right for the surprising chronology to get our attention because that's what Ezra wants to do. When he says Artaxerxes, he's talking about the, ki- about the king that's reigning at the time that he's writing his book, his letter. He's bringing you from 70 years in the past immediately into the present moment. Ezra wants us to see that the, that the providence of God in the past is the basis for our hope and the providence of God in the present. If this is what God has done 70 years ago, you can see it clear as day, then it just might be that God is providentially working in a similar way right now in the day in which you live. The same God who controlled the events of history controls the events that affect our lives today. He is not the God of the dead past, but of the living present. What this means for the readers of Ezra, both the contemporary readers, those to whom Ezra wrote this letter, or wrote this book, wrote this history, and to us who read it today, is that we should not read the outworking of history as fatalism. God has foreordained everything that happens, but this is not fatalism. Why? Because the outworking of history is done by a personal God, a God who is very much involved with his world and not an abstract force who has merely set things in motion and is now letting things play out by random chance. Instead, you should see God. Who is this God who has foreordained, who has decreed? Ah, decreed. He's a king. He's a great king. He is the king of kings. What happens in history and in your life is not random. 
But neither is it ultimately decided by the decree of a lesser king, not by Cyrus, not by Darius, not by Artaxerxes, and not by any modern-day king or emperor, president or prime minister, governor, manager, CEO. Many people wonder when considering the providence of God like this, for example, then what good is it for us to pray? If this God decrees everything that happens, why pray if God and his providence does all that he wills? But of course, if you understand that God is a personal God, that is, that he is a king who decrees, not some immovable force, then you will understand that we pray to God precisely because he is providential. God has the power as the king of the universe to see to it that everything goes according to his decree. In fact, God wants us to pray. He wants us to commune with him, to speak with him, because he wants us to see that the outcome of history is not due to karma, but to a king, a sovereign but personal God who holds the power of persuasion over everyone and everything. So at the end of chapter 6, as we read about the celebration of the Passover finally being observed again, Ezra again editorializes the story. He says this, verse 22, The Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Now notice that he groups all the Persian kings together again, Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. They are the king whose heart has been turned by the Lord. As Persian kings, they were sovereigns over the conquered land of Assyria. And Assyria, he calls them the king of Assyria because Assyria was that great nemesis of the nation of Israel that had struck fear in the hearts of the Jews for centuries. You hear Assyria means nothing to you, but for the original readers, God had turned the heart of the king of Assyria. In other words, there's a greater king over the most fearsome empire of the world. And this king gets his decrees done, not in spite of the kings of the world, but through them. Pastor Jod mentioned the verse you can't help but think when you read Ezra 6. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The story that we see in Ezra 1 through 6 is case in point for that teaching. So if we embrace this view of the providence of God, you simply will not be able to say, how's the song go? Que sera, sera. You you can't say that if you embrace this view of the providence of God because this is a personal king, not an immovable force. His rule over all things means that he intends to interact with his creation. He intends to commune with his creatures. We pray to him. We worship him, not in spite of his sovereignty, but because of it, because he is the great king who has the power to do whatever he pleases. Now, what is the end of the matter? 
what happens if indeed you accept the providence of God? What is the result from your response? What's the outcome of providence? Where does it take us? Where is it all leading us to? Ezra tells us that as well, but in order for us to see it, we kind of have to zoom out again for just a moment. We need to take a wider glance at the story that Ezra tells us. Because, of course, Ezra, first of all, tells us a story about restoration. The return from exile for the Jewish people upon the edict, the decree of Cyrus the Great, means that the people of God are being restored to their God, right? We've talked about this. The meaning of return from exile is the New Testament teaching of forgiveness of sins. If Israel is back in their land and if their temple is rebuilt, then the implication is the people of God have been restored to their God once again. That's the meaning of a temple being rebuilt. So what does that mean for you and for me? Why do we care if there is a temple built in Jerusalem 400 or so years before Jesus was born? The reason it matters to us is because, well, the same reason it mattered to them. There's a promise of God. We kind of made fun of it almost, and I didn't mean to do that, so I was like, we got to come back to this, and it's time to come back to it. It's that, it's that promise some of you have hanging up in your living room, you know, or maybe you took it down after the first sermon. Uh, Jeremiah 29. Can we go there for just a second? I certainly don't want this verse to lose its power. It should be even more powerful because of the story of Ezra. Let's take a look. Jeremiah 29. I'm going to pick it up in verse 10. This is the promise of God through the prophet Jeremiah to the people who have been exiled in Babylon. Here's what he says to them. Here's what he says to a people whose relationship with their God has been broken because of their sin. He says this, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And here's the verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me. And come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will, look, I will restore your fortunes, gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And we're back in Ezra chapter 6, and as we read the story here, when Ezra, as Ezra tells us the story, when the temple was finished, they dedicated the temple. Verse 13, 
But down at the, in verse 17, in the midst of all this information that can seem so insignificant, there's an echo to Jeremiah 29. They offered at the dedication of the house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. In other words, Israel's being reconstituted. Israel's being restored. All the tribes, you know the history of Israel is a broken kingdom sent into two separate exiles. But here, the returnees from Babylon are saying, this is the entire nation. This is the people of God restored to their God once again. In other words, Jeremiah 29, 11 tells us indeed that God's providential plan for his people is prosperity. The providence of God sounds wonderful when you say it that way. But if right now, some of us, some of you, like me, are dealing with suffering, difficulty, fear, frustration, the providence of God can be hard to accept. Unless unless you remember what the rebuilt temple means. God's plan to prosper his people is first a plan to reconstitute, to restore his people so that they can find him. They can find him. When they search for me, God says with all their heart, you will find me. You will find me. One day, Jesus looks at that second temple that had been rebuilt and said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it again. And the people mock. <laughs> Do you know how long, they say, it took to rebuild this temple? Jesus, haven't you ever read Ezra? <laughs> like, Don't you know the story? And John tells us that Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. You see, we do care about a temple. The temple where God has restored his people finally is the temple that we know named Jesus Christ. But second, notice in verses 19 to 22 that the people of Israel now begin to celebrate the Passover. Their temple's been rebuilt. They're celebrating the Passover. Now, what's the Passover? What's the Passover? You've, you've read your Bible. This is, a, this is a Jewish feast and festival that can mean absolutely nothing to you unless, <laughs> unless you know what the feast of the Passover is about. It is a commemoration of God rescuing his people. It is a reflection back on God's people being restored once again. God has rescued his people first from Egypt, but the time will come, the prophet Jeremiah says, when no longer will they say when God rescued his people out of Egypt, but when God restored his people from exile in Babylon. This is a significant moment. But notice what happens as they celebrate the Passover. Again, it's there. You could miss it if you don't stop and take notice. Verse 21 the Passover was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile. Now look, and also 
by every one who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Do you, do you see this? The story of the temple being rebuilt and the nation of Israel being reconstituted again is not just a story first of restoration. It is second, a story of welcome. It is a story of welcome. Who are the people of God? Well, the, the, the people returning from exile make it plain. We've seen in the story, we are the people of God. We will have nothing to do with the peoples of the lands. But what's he say right here? The, the Passover, the, the celebration of God restored to his people once again is on offer to all, to all who join them and separate themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Who can eat the Passover? All who will come to him. Anyone who will have him. The providence of God is about God first restoring his people, but second, it is about God welcoming his people. He welcomes all, all who will come. God has made a way. He has made a way back. He has made a way to be reconstituted to himself once again. And the spirit and the bride, Revelation twenty two seventeen, says the offer to all who will hear, come, come. Won't you come to the temple? If you hear me this morning, I'm saying to you, come to Jesus. His arms are open wide. He welcomes all who would come. Any who are hungry, come. Any who are thirsty, come. Anyone who is poor, you have nothing. You have no money to buy food or drink. Come and receive without payment is the invitation. This is the offer of a gracious God who brings his people home. So what is the outcome of God's providence? What is the prosperity in which God is carrying out all of his decrees of history? It is for reconciliation, restoration. It is for a gracious welcome. Anyone can come. But last, notice verse 22. They kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy for the Lord had made them joyful. The Lord had made them joyful. They kept the feast for seven days with joy. Why? The Lord made them joyful. It's almost like they can't help themselves when they have seen all that this God of mercy and grace has done, forgiving their sins, restoring them back into their land, rebuilding their temple, indicating once again that God was dwelling among them, that God was reconciled to them, that their sins were forgiven. The people respond with a joyful celebration. And so it is for the people of God today. Once we see what our Lord has done in bringing us home, bringing us out of exile, the great fulfillment of the prophets. He has restored us to himself. He dwells again among us in the person of Jesus Christ and by the power of his Holy Spirit, and he welcomes. We begin our worship gatherings as of late with a word of welcome, don't we? To all who are weary and need rest. Come, come. There's room at the table for all who will come. 
He welcomes us. And when you come to him, the outcome of his providence is he will make you joyful. He's causing all things to end in the maximum joy of his people now and forever. This is the God of grace. This is the God of, to whom we worship. So come to him. Let him make you glad. Let's pray together. Now, Father in heaven, we pray this morning that the same effect that the telling of Israel's story up to the point of the return from exile, the rebuilding of the temple, the same effect that that story had on the people of that day, would you let that be the effect on your people now? We sang about it this morning. We find ourselves feeling defeated, wondering where is the God who is providential. And we look back into the story and we see this is the God who turned the hearts of Persian kings. He will surely turn the events of history to bring about maximum joy for all his people now and forever. So we trust you, Lord. Where else can we turn? For those who suffer this morning and wonder if God cares, may they hear the welcome from Jesus Christ. And may they come. Please come. Bring us home, O Lord. Jesus is the one where God is found. So we come to Jesus. We come by his grace. We ask you to do this for all of your people now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.